welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we are going over UFC Vegas 61, which is headlined by a women's strawweight fight between Mackenzie Dern and Yan Nan. Very fun fight. We got a classic striker versus grappler matchup there. Obviously, Mackenzie Dern, one of the best BJJ specialists to step foot in the octagon. And Yan Nan has thunderous power on the other side, which she's able to intimidate and break opponents when she put, can put her punches together. So very fun fight at the top of the card. A couple of other fun fights sprinkled out throughout the card and a handful of betting opportunities that I've already taken advantage of and I'm still waiting on to take advantage of other parts as well. So appreciate everybody checking out the episode. As always, right at the top of the show, I'd like to remind you folks to hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. That is the easiest and best way you guys can show your support to your boy and if you want to take it one step further, you can drop a comment below as well, too. That definitely very much helps uh, all of the algorithm stuff and everything that you usually hear about. You guys normally think it's just a, a myth that people just throw it out there. But I mean it when I actually say it. Any sort of interaction that you guys have with the video greatly helps me as well. So truly appreciate every single one of you. And if you want to take two steps you guys can hit up the Patreon as well. Link is in the description below. Five bucks a month gets you early access to all the bets, best bets and props article. Uh, a lot of other great content we got on there, including one of the best discords in the game as well. So we appreciate everybody that's already a part of it. I think we're reaching right back up to 350 subscribers. So I truly appreciate every single one of you. Hoping to get back to that 400 mark, but the March uh, towards that 400 is definitely on the up and up considering the great run that we've been on over the past six months. So check out the link in the description below if you want to help support your boy. All right. Rule numero uno is transparency, right? We always go out there and showcase how we've done, whether it's a win, loss, a draw. We always show how we do, uh, how we did in the last event. So there's actually been three events since the last time I did the MMA Lawcast episode. So I'll quickly go over those uh, those results, and then uh, we can get into the breakdowns for this card. So first of which uh, was the Song Yudong versus Corey Sanhagen fight from uh, September 17th. So we're talking about two weeks ago now. And it was a winning event. So let's start off with the losses first, right? I had a, a 0.25 unit stab on Joe Pfeiffer to win by submission at plus 550. I ended up ripping up that ticket almost immediately after placing the bet as one of my friends actually sent me a clip saying that Joe Pfeiffer is looking to just knock this guy out. He legitimately even said, I am not looking to submit him. I want to knock him out. So, uh, you know, unfortunate. And there, I thought it was a great prop considering his background and how he used to fight by taking opponents to the ground and just trying to submit them. But he looked to get Amadovsky out of there and he had all of the advantage in, advantages in that fight to make it happen. And we saw what happened. The other loss on the night was a 1.9 unit play on a minus 190 line of Trevin Giles and Luis Cosi to not go to a decision. And after watching that first round, I knew that I knew that doesn't go to decision was not going to hit. You know, Cosi was very much. Um, you know, aware that his gas tank is no bueno. So he did his best to try to conserve it as long as he could. But unfortunately for him, that did not allow him to win the fight either. It was a success that he went the full 15 minutes, but it was a blunder in terms of the fact that he still ended up coming out with a loss there. Uh, 
All right, uh, let's get to the dubs because we had five of them on this card. First of which was the under two and a half in the Maria Agapova and Jillian Robertson fight. I got 1.5 units at minus 150. That catches for one unit. Robertson, usually my bay when it comes to under two and a half plays, just given her aggressiveness and ability to get to, you know, winning positions just as she did against Agapova or getting started trying to get to those winning positions and it was close with the amount of damage that Agapova was landing early in that fight but Jillian Robertson was able to get it back to the ground in that second round and eventually got that submission so good win for Robertson there and even even better cash for us there on the under two and a half uh, then we'll move on to Rodrigo Nascimento one unit at plus 154 he was my dog of the night play for that card and I was very happy to see him get it done the way that I expected him to get it done because I did also have an unofficial unattract um, play on the un, or sorry uh, him to win by decision at plus 700 hundred uh so yeah he went out there and did exactly what i thought he could you know tanner bozer literally just trying to punch any time that nascimento was in deep on a takedown rather than doing the right things of batting in the hands digging for underhooks jacking his opponent back up so that he couldn't get to his hips tanner bozer still needs a lot to learn in this game great striker great fighter but defensively speaking with his grappling seems to lack a lot there so able to catch that plus 154 on nascimento the under underdog play that i had catches with such ease and i got such shit for it during fight week damon jackson goes out there and starches pat sabatini one unit plus 164 very happy with that performance there you know i thought uh, that fight would stretch out a little bit longer to be honest but jackson had a heavy heart going into that fight and he showcased it as soon as he got into there got sabatini to the ground and eventually pounded him out there and got the win so don't sleep on guys like damon jackson and quit getting so ahead of yourselves with these prospects that are going out there winning the first couple ufc fights but still have holes in the game or at least still not have been tested to the extent of what their upcoming opponents are able to push out to them and this was another perfect example of that so shout out to anybody that cashed on damon jackson with me because that was a very sharp play next up i had a two and a half unit play on anthony hernandez at minus 175 that would have been a lock of the night play uh had i had more confidence on the anthony hernandez durability side of things i think this guy is an absolute problem you know i've been singing his praises since coming to the ufc and he fell short a couple times but this is a performance just as his last performance against josh friend that you can see why he is a highly touted prospect and why a lot of people think that he could bring some problems into this middleweight division constant takedowns endless cardio endless output the guy drowns you and then breaks you and that's exactly what he was able to do against mark andre barrio so solid cast there for 1.43 units and then lastly biggest play of the day um or biggest play of that event um loma lukbuni uh three units at minus 200 made it a little bit closer than i would have wanted but she still goes out there and showcases that she's the better mixed martial artist at that point in their career and that was able to cash for 1.5 units so all in all plus 4.96 units for a 44 percent roi very happy with my performance there uh again the the giles and kosi fight a little bit of a bummer that we ended up missing on that but is what it is I, I wish i took the cameron van camp and nicholas mota under two and a half instead because i felt just as good about that one as well but for some reason only pulled the trigger on this one so great win there like i said that brought us into the next contender series event which i was red hot on but i only had one bet on this and i probably should have had two but uh, my one bet on the week nine of the contender series was one unit on heacher jacoby at plus 144 
He has a lot of early success, but then Austin Lane is able to reverse things and have success of his own and eventually gets a dub as well. So minus one unit there. I was going to make a Bruno Fajera and uh, Nurillo Aliyev parlay as well, but I'm trying to get away from chalky parlays, right? But there are certain spots where you should be able to take advantage of it. And that's what I learned. And that's what I implemented in last night's card um, for the week 10 event of Dana White Contender Series. Um, I had a 1.57 unit parlay at minus 105 on Matias Mendonca and Jack Jenkins. Both guys go in there and do the damn thing. Mendonca makes it look super easy. Jack Jenkins absolutely dominates Freddie Linares, eventually finishing him with 30 seconds left. So he cashed there. But the one unit play on the underdog of Vinicius Sensia plus 190 goes down the drain. Great first round from our big underdog, but his cardio really seems to slow down there. And that's where Sam Patterson was able to take over and get the dub so all in all plus 0.5 units on that event um and we end contender series pretty live right i think it was a 30 percent roi for just about six units of uh, uh of profit um yeah just playing it light on contender series and cashing pretty solidly as well so i'll miss the contender series can't wait for next year um, but in the meantime, we got some UFC to get back to. So without further ado, let's get right into the breakdowns for UFC Vegas 61. We have a 13 fight card. I believe the first fight of the night is going to be at 4 p.m. Eastern. So don't get caught napping. I love these slightly earlier cards, as you guys always hear me say, but we'll kick it off right here. First fight of the night. We got a blistering bantamweight fight kicking off the card here. We got Randy Costa going up against Guido Canetti. In terms of odds, we got minus 285 on Randy Costa and plus 240 the return on Guido Canetti. Now, Randy Costa in the first round is a mythical monster, right? The guy goes out there and just absolutely puts his, uh, the pressure on his opponents. More often than not, is able to knock them out. But if he cannot... That's where we see the bad part of his game come out. And that's his either confidence or at least the, the cardio dwindling, which forces his confidence to go down. And you see him fall off a cliff after that like four-minute mark, maybe even that five-minute mark. And that's where you see uh, opponents able to go out there and take advantage of that, right? He looks so good in the early going because he's so dynamic with his strikes, great head kicks, big power, good combinations, but he just does not have the cardio to keep up with his opponents. You saw it in his last two fights alone. You saw it in all three of his UFC losses, right? The Brandon Davis fight, that's his UFC debut, has a great first round, falls off in the second, Brandon Davis chokes him out in the second. He goes out there, knocks out Boston Salmon in his next fight in two minutes, knocks out Journey Newsom in the next one in 40 seconds, but then falls on hard times again with the two-fight losing streak, all due to the reason he lost that first fight against Brandon Davis. All of his losses coming in the second round, right? Like, it's you can't even draw this up. Like, it's, it's so blatant right if he can't knock you out in the first round he's gonna lose in the second adrian yanez one of the best prospects we have at 135 pounds randy costa lighting him up in the first round without much issue at all but he falls off a cliff adrian yanez takes over in the second round knocks him out tony kelly another guy randy costa has major success with in that first round kelly makes it to the second round finds that finish grounds and pounds him in the second round it's just the same story over and over again. Now, even though Guido Canetti is well into, I want to say he's 42. Let me just get this number here correct. He's 42. He'll be 43 in December. Even though he's well into his 40s, I'm okay with saying that he's a live underdog here. Like, 
he has the chops to potentially survive that early onslaught from Randy Costa and then put him on put it on him in the second and get him out of there. Or even put it on him at the ending of that first and get him out of there. So I think the best way of approaching this, rather than taking the chalk on Randy Costa, because if you are taking chalk on Randy Costa here, God bless your soul. You know what I mean? He might go out there and start Guido Canetti, but this is not the spot to be betting minus 285, minus 300 on a guy that has as bad of cardio issues as Randy Costa does. Skill-wise, blows Guido Canetti off the charts, but skill is nothing when you have cardio, you have no cardio to back it up. So the way that I'd be looking to play it, under one and a half. Minus 155, I'm seeing minus 165 certain spots as well. I think there's a ton of value there, given how both of these guys compete. I don't expect Guido Canetti to like grapple with him to try to suck out his energy early and drag this fight into the late second or third round. I'm expecting both guys to throw bombs, and I'm expecting one of them to land it and get them out of there. Kennedy is absolutely live in this spot as an underdog, but he's going to be at a speed disadvantage early in this fight, and I think that's ultimately what's going to cost him, allowing Randy Costa to knock him out in that first round. But rather than taking the chalk on Costa, you get a much better line playing the under one and a half to pretty much back him at his uh, best win condition. And that's to go out there and, and try to knock out his opponents early here. So I'm going to go Randy Costa. Randy Costa, first round knockout. But the under one and a half is definitely the play. Also another play I'll throw out there. Uh, Guido Canetti, round two. I think it's at some crazy number right now. It's worth taking a little bit of a poke at considering that's the only round that Randy Costa has ever lost three times in his career. Uh, plus 1,800 Guido Canetti in round two take a stab folks take a little bit of a sprinkle and thank me later but put the majority of your money on the under one and a half because that's the way i think this fight is going to go all right next up we're going to be talking about a women's uh it's actually a catch weight now of 140 pounds it looks like <coughs> excuse me i got one more coming <coughs> there we go Catchweight bout of 140 pounds between Yulia Stoliarenko and UFC debutant Chelsea Chandler. We got minus 115 on Stoliarenko and minus 105 on the UFC newcomer Chelsea Chandler. Now, Chelsea out of Stockton, California. She's aligned herself with the Caesar Gracie camp and she's a part of the Nick Diaz army and she trains a lot of, you know, pretty much all of her camps out of there in Stockton uh, she she seems like a, a thick girl in the, in the sense that she's strong right you see in her first fight she throws up a bunch of submissions early in that fight but continuously uh her opponent is able to get out of those positions and eventually uh, get better positions and control Chelsea and that was the the first loss and only loss on Chelsea's record um and she learned a lot from there because in her next couple fights you see her just pretty much cage clinching her opponents, just pushing them up against the cage, staying active enough with uh, dirty boxing and knees, and she's able to control her opponents there because she's strong enough to do so, and her opponents can't get out of those positions. Her striking still needs a little bit of work, but she shows that she could have raw power that can transit if she ch uh, not, uh, hits you on the chin. And her jiu-jitsu is definitely good enough to hang on the ground with the girl like Yulia Stoliarenko. Stoliarenko finally picked up her first win in the UFC last time around where she was able to get a armbar victory over Jessica Rose Clark uh, and that's the ninth out of 10 wins for Yulia Stoliarenko that come via armbar that's why I call her the Lithuania Ronda Rousey she just goes out there and collects arms arm after arm after arm after arm 
Like they need to make, if you guys remember during the Ronda Rousey era, she used to have this, uh, the, somebody made like an animated GIF or something or a picture of uh, Ronda Rousey in her in her living room and on the firehouse mantle was like everybody's arm that she like collected. They need to do that for for uh, Yulia Stolyarenko because that, that's how much she looks to go after arms of her opponents, right? Um, she's very aggressive. She comes forward. Her striking is really not there, technically speaking, but a lot of it is just due to her grit and her toughness. She doesn't mind eating shots to close the distance so that she can eventually get her arms around you and drag you to the ground. And I'm thinking that's what we're going to be seeing here with her and Stol uh, Chandler uh, in terms of just trying to jockey for a position, trying to get the better position. I'd be surprised if Chandler is successful in cage-clinching Stoliarenko for over 15 minutes because I'm expecting at a certain point for this fight to hit the mat, and I think we're going to see a ton of submission attempts from both women. I'm going to end up leaning on the Stoliarenko side as who ends up getting the victory as I think she's just a tad bit more aggressive, and I think that's going to cause Chelsea in this matchup. She also has a ton of experience against high-level competition, at least in comparison to what Chelsea Chandler has been going up against. Chandler, in my opinion, a little bit too raw still. This might be a little bit too quick for her to also get into the UFC, but if she can go out there and beat a girl like Stoliarenko, they should hopefully build her up even slower because she still has a lot of work to do, in my opinion. She could be a solid prospect, right? If she puts her... Uh, if she gets the discipline and technique behind her striking, she should she could start putting some women down because she already has the jujitsu to hang with some of these girls in, in, in that in that sphere. But Stoliarenko is going to be one of the tougher tests that she's ever faced because of the the offensive nature that Stoliarenko has. Right, she's always throwing up submissions. She does a good job in terms of retaining guard when she needs to, and she can even pull off reversals if that's what's required as well. So I'm going to lean with the Stoliarenko side here. I'm intrigued ever so slightly by the under two and a half, which is around plus one fifty. But like, I, I just can't get to the window there. Like, I see that possibility of Chandler just cage clinching her and putting putting her in an uncomfortable position where she can just grind her out over 15 minutes. But I'm going to lean with a slightly more experienced fighter here in Stoliarenko and think that she'll eventually be able to lock up a submission uh, maybe in the second or third round of this fight. But I'm going to go Stoliarenko and Stoliarenko by sub. All right, next up. We got a men's light heavyweight fight. This one goes down between Maxime Grishin and Philippe Lenz. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 180 for Grishin and plus 155 for Philippe Lenz. Now, I remember last week on one of my live streams, uh, somebody said, oh, Maxime Grishin, lock, you know, um, Philippe Lins is absolute bum. He sucks. He shouldn't be in the UFC, blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, I tried defending Philippe Lins a little bit. I'm like, hey, you know, the, the guy won a million dollars in PFL. Uh, you know, bad matchups for him against Andre Olofsky and, uh, and Tanner Bozer in a sense. Uh, and then he obviously picks up his first win since coming down to light heavyweight in his last fight against Marcin Prakno, who, you know, again, pre-tape seemed like a little bit more of a difficult matchup than Maxime Grishin. But after running the tape... Kind of get the love on Grishin. I'm just not so much to the extent of actually wanting to go out there and put the money on Grishin, right? Grishin, very solid all-around fighter because this guy has, what is it, 43 fights of experience. This is going to be his 44th professional MMA fight. This guy has fought all over the world. He's fought the who's who. He made his debut all the way back in 2008. Um, you know, early in his career, he's fighting uh, names like Alexander Volkov. And uh, there's another one that sticks out to me. That I'm just, oh, Shane Del Rosario. Like he's just fighting uh, 
Baga Agaev, another very high level guy from way back in the day too. Like he's just fighting quality competition all over the world before he eventually made his UFC debut back in uh, July of 2020 on short notice against Marcin Tabura. But he's split his four fights so far going two and two most recently beating up on William Knight that was an, a very easy matchup for him obviously we all know that William Knight really just not that good anymore to be honest but this seems to be a good matchup for him to go out there and just do what he does right he is a uh, a very like I said very solid all-around fighter good striking good wrestling uh good ability to control his opponents up against the cage if he needs to um and you know I think he has the cardio advantage in this matchup as well Philippe Lins, in his last fight against Marcin Pracnow, landed some opportune uh, strikes on the feet, you know, was landing the better uh, damage, of course, over Pracnow, landed some takedowns when he needed to, but he just couldn't control uh, Pracnow long enough on the ground to truly get off good enough damage. And then in that third round, you see both of the fighters huffing and puffing, right? Not a good look for Philippe Lins. You got to wonder how much the, you know, him going down, down to light heavyweight is draining him of, draining him of his gas tank. Now, this is going to be the second time he's gone to down to light heavyweight, and he may produce a better version of himself, considering now he might be getting the diet and everything, the routine a little bit better compared to the first time around. So maybe we'll see a better version of him here. But everything on tape kind of shows me that Grishin will likely be able to one outpoint him, because one of the issues I had with Linz from earlier in his fights was that he just wasn't, you know, he was very low volume. Like he was too calculated to a to a fault and the fact that he was just letting the fights just pass him by right the Andre Arlovsky fight is a perfect example of that um you, you know Grishin will likely stay busy enough that it's going to cause uh, cause Philippe Lins to work which might ultimately end up gassing him later in this fight Grishin I think will be the liver fighter the later that this fight goes and I think from there he should be able to pull far enough ahead that he should be able to uh, uh win this fight by decision and and grind on Philippe Lins uh you know the later that this fight goes so uh the pick is going to be grishin i'm not super comfortable playing him at minus 180 because i am going to give room for philippe Lenz to potentially make some improvements uh it is a little you know sketchy that uh maxine grishin is now 38 years old as well compared to the well wow i don't know why the hell i thought for some reason that philippe Lenz was like 32 but he's 37 as well so he's no spring chicken either uh but i still do like the the maxine grishin side here to go out there and get the dub grind this fight out and get the decision victory all right next up let's go to a men's middleweight fight we got brendan allen taking off christoph jotko in terms of odds we now have minus 120 on christoph jotko and plus 100 on brendan allen i've never like don't get me wrong i'm a fan of brendan allen i think the guy's fun to watch entertaining fighter great personality and all that i just never bought the hype on him always being minus 300 in certain fights like like the, the last fight against Jacob Malkoon, that was a close fucking fight. That was a very close fight, and he was a minus 300 favorite in that fight. You know, that stylistically speaking is a different fight than the one that he has coming up this weekend against Shotko, but that's a fight that was supposed to be, you know, where he has an advantage. But Jacob Malkoon had a very strong wrestling and grappling game as well, which he was able to get Allen into some bad positions. But Allen's striking, you know, that's still coming along. A lot of it is just like big uh, shots from the outside so that he can eventually try to get in on your hips and take it to the ground. Um, 
you know, a lot of high kicks, a lot of body kicks, uh, big power shots, no big combinations or anything like that, but a lot of just pot shots from the outside so that you can eventually get you to the ground. Christoph Jotko is clearly going to be the better striker here, right? Great combinations, uses his length very well, has a solid kicking game too, but the best part of his game, or at least in this particular matchup, should be his takedown defense. I think he has good enough takedown defense to kind of telegraph anytime um, Brendan Allen is going to be coming in to shoot a takedown. And then from there, he should be able to push uh, Brendan Allen uh, off, get back to the striking, and start touching him up on the feet again. And uh, I don't want to say he's going to knock him out, but I think that he could uh, hurt him on numerous occasions, but not overextend enough so that he gets taken down and put into a bad position. I like Jotko a decent amount here, and I personally like the the odds quite a lot as well at minus one twenty. I think this this is a perfect matchup for him to go out there and just do what Jotko does, right? Touch up his opponents. A lot of his opponents try to take him to the mat, and even though uh, I think it was Misha Serkinov who landed multiple takedowns on him, I just can't seem to pull it up at this moment. But Serkinov did land a, a handful of takedowns on him, but he very much struggled to keep Kristoff Jotko on the mat. And I think that Brendan Allen will likely struggle just as much because Jotko does a very good job in terms of retaining his guard, pushing on the hips, getting back to the feet. But I think the even better part of his game is the fact that he can stuff takedowns at a decent enough clip. That's going to cause Brendan Allen some troubles. And then I think he's going to start to get desperate on the feet, which should open up some more striking opportunities for Kristoff Jotko as well. So I think that this is a great spot for Jotko to go out there and get a win against a guy like Brendan Allen, outstrike him on the feet, likely win this fight by decision, get his hand raised, go home with both of his paychecks. So give me Kristoff Jotko via decision. Next up, this one should be a fun one. We got Joaquim Silva going up against Jesse Ronson. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 145 for uh, Silva and plus 125 the return on the Canadian, the body snatcher, Jesse Ronson. Now, I've been a big fan of Jesse Ronson for a long time. Right? I actually used to for work for one of the shows that he worked uh, or fought for on the regional scene up here in my neck of the woods. And uh, probably one of the best fights I've ever seen was him against Ryan Healy. Uh, if Healy sounds familiar to anybody, Pat Healy used to fight in the UFC, but he had a brother named Ryan Healy who was doing the damn thing on the regional scene, you know, putting on very entertaining fights. Jesse Ronson completely lit him up in that fight, but there was one instance or one moment in that fight where like Jesse Ronson landed like three straight head kicks back to back to back, and they all landed super clean. It was one of the craziest scenes I've ever seen. But Jesse, uh, great combinations, great striker, has some big power in his hands as well. Unfortunately for him, the one Achilles heel that he always seems to have is when opponents are able to take him to the ground, grind him out, use their jujitsu, and get the better of him there. Now, officially speaking, Jesse Ronson is still winless inside the UFC. This dates back to his first tenure inside the UFC, which I believe was around 2013, 2014, where he went 0 of 3, but against high-level competition, right? We got to give him some credit for that. Um, let me just pull it up here, who he ended up facing. But... Yeah, he, he made his UFC debut initially uh, September of 2013 at UFC 165, the Jones and Gustafson card. Lost a split decision there to Michel Prezeris. Next fight, lost a split decision to Francisco Trinaldo, who is actually in the co-main event of this card still. And then he lost a split decision to Kevin Lee. Ends up getting cut and... Uh, 
finds himself outside of the UFC. Now, years and years later, obviously making it back to the UFC. Got that big win over Nicholas Dalby, but unfortunately got to change to a no contest because he popped for some sort of steroid. He did come back in uh, April of this year and ended up getting finished by Hafa Garcia. Now he got, goes up against another guy, Joaquim Silva, who has been relatively inactive, right? Or inactive, I should say. Uh, High-level BJJ, um, solid striking, but it seems like the 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 durability of, of Silva is really starting to dwindle. And that's why I think that Jesse Ronson could be live in this spot. But I think it would take, you know, it doesn't take a fucking rocket scientist to realize that you need to get this fight to the ground if you're the Joaquin Silva side. And I feel like he'll be successful in doing so. And from there, I think he can eventually work for a submission of some sort and get Jesse Ronson out of there. That is Jesse Ronson's biggest you know or, or his kryptonite is when guys can get fights to the ground we saw it against Hoffa Garcia we've seen it in his prior run as well but I think that uh he'll struggle to keep Silva off of him if he can then I think a knockout for Jesse Ronson is very live so what all this is bringing me to is that I think that this is a great op- opportunity to take care uh to take advantage of a violent spot because I saw the under two and a half around minus 130 or so. And I think that's a great spot because both guys have finishing opportunities. Obviously, Jesse Ronson with his knockout power and Joaquin Silva with his one own knockout power and two, his uh, jujitsu advantage that I expect for him to have in this matchup. And then from there, he should be able to take over. And, uh, you know, I, I really think that he'll be able to get his grappling going, get this to the mat eventually. And then from there, he should be able to find a submission. I'm expecting pure violence in this matchup. I understand the underdog shots on Jesse Ronson. I'm not playing Joaquin Silva at minus 145. I wouldn't advise that either. Um, I would rather just take a similarly priced prop, which is the under two and a half. So pick is Joaquin Silva by sub, but the bet I like the most is the under two and a half. All right, let's move this along to the next fight. We're going to be talking about a women's fly or sorry, a strawweight fight between Jessica Penne and Baby Shark Tabitha Ricci. In terms of odds, we got minus 210 on Tabitha Ricci and plus 180 the return on Jessica Penne. Now, I really thought this was a spot where I could go out there and maybe parlay Tabitha Ricci with Randy Brown, right? Like, I feel like those two are some pretty good spots. Um, honey barcelos maybe john castaneda but after writing the tape on all those matchups i think the best way to go about this is probably passing on this fight you know i'm a big tabitha ricci fan right i think that she has a tremendous amount of skill and she could eventually burst into that top 10 that top seven even and probably be a a problem for a lot of folks but i think just how slightly behind she is in her striking is going to possibly cause her issues moving forward right uh, we saw her kind of struggle to close that distance distance against Poliana Vienna uh, in her fight and it seemed like she really needed those takedowns to grind out that matchup because if she didn't get those takedowns Vienna was likely ahead just on damage alone right um, and Vienna not the greatest striker either um, but Tabitha very much struggled to close that distance to land any of her strikes. Her only success was able, was being able to get that fight to the ground. Similar to the Maria Oliveira fight, she did have some striking success there, at least more than she did in the uh, uh, Poliana Vienna fight, but it was still the takedowns that eventually uh, bailed her out of bad positions. Now here against Jessica Penny, she should be able to get those takedowns still, right? I think that she, she'll have no issues getting those takedowns because it seems like Jessica Penny is completely okay with working in the jiu-jitsu realm if you want to take her there. Both girls are high-level black belts in jiu-jitsu, so I think it'll be competitive on the mat. But Jessica Penny is very offensive-minded, right? She makes it very difficult for opponents to be comfortable from on top and have that success from on top. Um, 
You know, we saw in the Lupita Godinez fight, even when Lupita was getting into the grappling realm, Jessica Penny was still having success in terms of uh um in terms of tying her up in, in bad positions, not allowing uh Lupita to get off much damage or anything like that. And I'm sure that the decision is still controversial to this point, but at the end of the day, anybody that had money on Lupita Godinez that night, excuse me, had to rip up their ticket because of how slimy Jessica Penne was still making that fight. Now, in her last fight against Emily Ducati, that is how a fight with Tabitha Ricci realistically should go, right? Ricci should stay on the leg kicks, stay on the outside, try to box her up from the outside and come back out. And even though she's giving up a, a big height and reach advantage, that's how she should fight, right? Speed advantage, uh, kicks, combinations. Emily Ducati is just much better at that than Tabitha Ricci is. So don't expect Tabitha Ricci to have the similar amount of success that Emily Ducati did. So it, it gives me pause in the fact that like if they're at range, Jessica Penne could just touch her up from the outside. And then once this fight does get into the grappling, Jessica Penne is a good enough jiu-jitsu player to keep this fight close, right? Even when Tabitha was getting Poliana to the ground, she wasn't really landing much damage from on top. I could see Penne being active enough from her guard to make the fight closer than it should be. That's why, like, I, I took Tabitha Ricci in the Poliana-Vienna fight as a minus 120, minus 130 favorite. I'm okay with that price. If we're getting that price here, I'm okay with that price, and I'd probably bite on it as well. But at minus 210, minus 220, you're expecting her to be more dominant than she was in the Poliana Vienna fight. And I'm being honest, I don't know if she will. I, I think that this will end up being a closer fight. Um, I'm still picking Tabitha Ricci to win. I think she'll still be able to grind this fight out. But at a minus 210 clip, I just am not comfortable enough to play that sort of chalk and be confident that she'll be able to get her hand raised. So she is the pick. She's the better overall fighter. Um... But Jessica Penne can make this a very close fight. I want to continue to see the improvements out of Tabitha Ricci before they start putting her up against top 10 opponents and specifically in her striking, which I'm expecting we're going to see improvements. But until I see it with my eyes, I don't want to put money behind it at minus 200 to, to try to back that up either. So pick here is Tabitha Ricci. Jessica Penne is live, which is why I'll likely not have any action on this matchup. All right, next up, we got a fight that we've been talking about for seemingly a year now. Hopefully we get it this weekend. Hopefully there's no fuckery on either side. We're getting Lear Latifi coming in at minus 175. He's going up against the Boa Constrictor, Alexei Olenek, who's coming in at plus 150. Or, sorry, plus 150, I should say, sorry. Um, intriguing fight, right? Just to kind of... Uh, I don't want to say striker versus grappler matchup because like Latifi is a bit of a grappler himself, right? He's a big, strong guy, very tough to 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 deal with. Now, last time around that we saw Alexei Olenek, he pulled off a victory over Jared Vandera where he was able to get a scarfold victory in that first round. This was back in April. That was also the night that... Uh, that Olenek was supposed to fight Alir Latifi, but Latifi had to withdraw. I'm not 100% sure why. He was sick, I believe it was. Uh, and then on the flip side for Latifi, the last time we saw him in the cage was uh, June of 2021, where he just eked out a decision over Tanner Bozer. Uh, a lot of that success having to do with him being able to get the fight to the ground and grind out Tanner Bozer. Now, this fight could play out a couple different ways, right? It could play out with Elir Latifi starching Alexei Olenek right off the jump. It could play out with Alexei Olenek landing some sort of submission when Elir Latifi looks to get him to the ground. 
Or this could be, you know, Latifi getting uh, Olenek to the ground, grinding him out over 14 minutes and then getting subbed late in the fight. I'm curious to see how Latifi is looking to approach it, right? Because a lot of his success normally comes from him grinding his opponents to the mat and just laying on top of them and just making it hard. Because from everybody, you know, I think it was even Daniel Cormier that said that one of the strongest wrestlers he's ever sparred against or gone up against is Alir Latifi. The guy is a fucking brick shit house when you're when you're trying to move him or anything like that. So I'm wondering what at what success rate Alexei Olenek is actually going to be able to get Alir Latifi to the ground, and if he can't, can he handle the power that Latifi will be throwing on the feet? So this fight has so many volatile outcomes that I'm not even going to bother betting it in my personally. But what I'm thinking will be most likely is a quick Latifi knockout here. I'm thinking that we see him put the pressure and speed and power on him almost immediately so he doesn't have to worry about this fight getting dragged deeper and uh, him gassing out and him having to worry about anything like that. So I'm going to go Latifi. Latifi by knockout under one and a half wouldn't be a bad spot either. But this could be a slow drawn out fight that could be very, very boring as well. I'm hoping Latifi just puts us puts it out of our misery almost immediately and takes Alexei Olenek out. Value could be on Olenek as well, so I don't hate anybody for taking a shot on him there either, but I do lean the Latifi side and the Latifi power to go out there and get the dub. Next up, we got the curtain jerker of the main card. Finally, we are getting the return of Mike Davis. Uh, we're talking about an eight, sorry, what is that? Uh, Close to a 20-month layoff, just over a 20-month layoff for Mike Beast Boy Davis. He's taking on Vyacheslav Borshev in the 155-pound division. In terms of odds, we got Mike Davis as the favorite at minus 180, plus 155 the return on Slava Claus, Vyacheslav Borshev. Now, Mike Davis, last time we saw him in the cage, was going to war against uh, prospect Mason Jones. That was in January of 2021, back-and-forth fight, phenomenal fight. It seems like the takedowns of Mike Davis that night ultimately allowed him to get his hand raised. Now, Mike Davis had a ton of injuries coming out of that Mason Jones fight, which kept him out of action for the majority of 2021. He was ready to get back into the action at the end of 2021, but unfortunately uh, uh, contracted COVID, and uh, apparently it really fucked him up. It really, really messed him up, and he... um, he said he was very much struggling to get his cardio back in check as well, which we know he does rely on, especially for the types of performances he likes to put on to his, his opponents. He said at the end of 2021, he managed to get it back in check, was ready to go. And then he had a bunch of issues in terms of, you know, not wanting to fly to London to fight, um, just a bunch of personal and family issues as well that he was dealing with. Uh, but now here he is nearing the end of 2022, finally getting back inside the cage. He's a great all-around fighter, right? Good striking, solid combinations, solid jiu-jitsu, good wrestling as well, which is something that I think he needs to lean on here. But given his layoff and the issues that he had with COVID, especially even saying that he was struggling with getting his cardio back in check, it gives me a little bit of pause in terms of playing him here against a guy like Vyacheslav Borshev. Now, Borshev was everybody's darling at the beginning of the year, right? He came in, finished Dakota Bush, 
uh, he had another big fight, uh, if I remember correctly. And then he ran into uh, Mark D. Casey, and he was a solid favorite over Mark D. Casey that night. But everybody saw that the experience and the underrated grappling game of D. Casey was going to be the key to victory for him that night. And that, that's what D. Casey was able to do. He pulled off 11 takedowns and was able to control him for upwards of 12 minutes of that 15-minute fight. Now, the the positive thing, like if you want to look at a glass half full for Borshev is he managed to get up 10 times, right? He still made Mark D. Casey have to work for all those takedowns. And then on the feet, you know, Mark D. Casey saw a strike, he was able to hold his own. But we know Borshev is a very strong striker, right? Good combinations, uh, utilizes his movement very well. His range is very good as well. And if he can make Mike Davis work here, he could possibly start to chip away at Mike Davis later in this fight and possibly get him out of there. His cardio seemed to be okay even in the the D.A. Casey fight, even after getting ragdolled for as long as he did. But if Mike D.K. or if uh, Mike Davis is not able to control or finish Borshev early in this fight, he's going to have a lot to deal with in terms of Borshev continuously getting back to his feet and putting those power punches on him and those combinations on him. And maybe even eventually he'll be able to stuff some of those takedowns later in this fight. This would be a different story, though, if Mike Davis had just competed four or five months ago and we saw that his cardio and everything was good to go. There's just too many question marks for me at, you know, minus 180 to be comfortable playing that type of chalk on Mike Davis with everything that he was dealing with outside of the cage. But if he comes back and showcases a very solid version of himself, you know, what we were used to seeing of him, then I'll be okay with playing chalk on him moving forward. But in this particular matchup, you know, he could get outstruck. He could get outlasted and eventually finished later in this fight that is absolutely on the board so um the pick is still davis i'm still going to go with davis in terms of being able to get the takedowns and grinding out borshev because that is still a big flaw in borshev's game but the cardio aspect of this is is the big thing for me i just wonder if davis is truly 100 percent ready to go to go out there and put that type of game plan forward or will borshev be able to take advantage of that and finish him late in this fight so pick is Mike Davis, Mike Davis by decision, but be very careful playing the chalk here on Mike Davis. All right, next up, we are looking at John Castaneda going up against Daniel Wiley Cat Santos. In terms of odds, we got minus 190 on Castaneda and plus 160 the return on Daniel Santos. This is a fun fight, you know. Uh, Daniel Santos, very, very fun prospect, obviously fell short in his last fight against Julio Arce, who was just a better striker overall that night, but this is a very fun fight, and I can't wait to, to see how it goes down. Now, we'll start off on the Castaneda side, who was able to pick up his second victory in the octagon last time around when he was able to defeat Miles Johns uh, as an underdog. You know, it surprised a lot of people that night as Johns was not able to get anything off that night and Castaneda showed a confidence that he had not shown up until that point. He knew he was the better striker that night. He knew he could put the pressure on uh, Johns and he knew that he could uh, pull out those takedowns from Johns so that he, you know, telegraphed them so that he could stop them and eventually keep beating him on the feet. And Johns just seemed demoralized maybe six minutes into that fight that he just couldn't get anything going. And Castaneda, with that relentless pressure and pace, was able to just break Johns and eventually finish him in that third round. So shout out to anybody that got in on Castaneda there. The fight before that, and even the fight before that one, you know, the Nathaniel Wood and the Eddie Wineland fight, give the the cause for concern for him in this fight now castaneda when he can lead the dance and the striking that's probably when he's best 
But you see in the Eddie Wineland fight, when Wineland is the one landing the big strikes and keeping uh, John Castaneda on his back foot, that's where you see John try to, you know, be a little bit more of a spectator than actually trying to initiate anything and take control of the fight. Luckily for him, Eddie Wineland, horrible uh, durability and chin at that point in his career. John, eventually at the end of that round, was able to land a big shot and put Eddie Wineland out. But that first, you know, four minutes was pretty much all Eddie Wineland. Then the Nathaniel Wood fight. We saw Wood control the majority of the, the striking there and he was able to be more diverse and land the better strikes and land more strikes than Castaneda there, right? A lot of Castaneda's strikes, at least in that fight and, and even the prior fight, were just wide-winging hooks. Uh, it was the pressure in the Johns fight which I think allowed him to win that fight. But here against Daniel Santos, he's fighting a guy that will likely take charge in the striking realm. You know, uh, Santos has very good output. He has big power in his hands. He has a variety of strikes that he can throw out there. And he has a great takedown defense game that if Castaneda looks to try to take this fight to the ground, I think he's going to struggle in doing so. And then from there, I think Santos will be able to be the one that lands the better strikes. And, you know, take, like I said, takes control of the striking. I think we'll see Castaneda on his back foot for the majority of this fight. And that will allow Daniel Santos to really control it by landing the big power shots. Now, I think the reason we have the line the way that it is is because we're getting the tale of two different fights uh, and, and recency bias, right? John Castaneda, career best performance against Miles Johns as a big underdog in his last fight. He's going to get a lot of steam. Whereas Wiley Cat, you know, coming off in abysmal performance against Julio Arce uh, and lost, so people are kind of low on him at this point. But the difference between Julio Arce and John Castaneda is that Arce is a very great striker. He is a very good technical striker with great head movement, knows how to get in and out of his positions, and he was able to make Wally Cat miss on a lot of his shots. John Castaneda, not as good of a striker in my opinion as Arce, and I think he's going to eat a lot of those shots that Daniel Santos threw, threw that night. I'm just going to quickly pull it up here because I know Santos was uh, landing on Julio Arce at a very... Uh, a abysmal clip let me just get it up here um daniel santos landed 21 percent of his strikes 49 of 229 so he was missing a lot but that a lot of that has to do with uh julio arce's ability to not eat damage right julio arce uh he eats 3.08 strikes per minute a lot of that i believe also had to come from actually no it, it, it didn't eat that, that is how much he eats, 3.08 strikes landed per minute. On the flip side for John Castaneda, again, not a big sample size considering he only has four fights or, well, three fights in the UFC and one fight on the contender series. He eats 4.53 significant strikes per minute. So not as good striking defense as Julio Arce, which is, you know, where the question comes to me. Um, will Castaneda have as much success as Julio Arce did? I just don't think so, right? 70% striking defense from Julio Arce, 52, nope, sorry, 50, let me get the number correct here, 56% uh, from John Castaneda. I think a lot of those big power shots are going to land for Daniel Santos, and I think he can, one, either he can knock him out. I know Castaneda has not been knocked out since his first ever professional loss, but I think Santos has that type of power, uh, or the bigger shots that he's landing are going to count for more in the judges' scorecards, and even if Castaneda tries to get that, that grappling going, we've seen Santos go up against very solid level uh, grapplers, even over there in the Russia regional scene, and hold his own. I don't think Castaneda will hold a candle to to those type that type of wrestling approach that uh, Santos has already faced on the regional scene. So Daniel Santos, 
will likely be my dog of the night play this weekend. I love him in this spot. Plus 160, I think, is a phenomenal line. This line should be much closer, in my opinion, and I think we're getting a ton of uh, value on the Daniel Santos side. So let's go Wiley Cat, and I'm going to say I'm going to say KO, but we're already getting a great line on his money line, so need no need to get aggressive and take the uh, the prop there. All right, next fight. We got four fights left here, next of which is Sadiq Youssef going up against Don Shanus. In terms of odds, we're currently getting minus 900 on Sadiq Youssef, plus 625 the return on Don Shanus. Now, originally, actually, no, this wasn't a short notice matchup. This was actually supposed to, Don just got signed up outright. He's the Cage Titans champion. He's also the FAC champion. So he finally gets a shot in the UFC. Uh, he also has a win over former UFC fighter Cody Fister on his record. But he's been on a hot streak as of late. You know, he lost a five-round decision to Nathan Williams, uh, I want to say a couple years ago now. But since then, has not looked back. Uh, or Nathan Williams, he lost to in July of 2021. But since then, one, two, three, four, five straight wins. Uh, four of those being finishes, one of them being a decision against a bigger guy in Chris Lencioni, uh, former Bellator fighter as well. Uh, and he showcased a very great grappling game there. Now, after running the tape on Don, I was like, why is the line as wide as, as it is, right? Sadiq Yusuf is a great talent, don't get me wrong. But like, sometimes he's a little bit too low volume. Sometimes he just lets fight kind of pass him by. Sometimes he starts to slow down and he loses the last round. From what I've seen on Don Shanus, the guy looks to be a very strong grappler. Like he can, I think he can get Sadiq Yusuf to the ground here. And I think he can make this a close fight. Even on the feet, you know, Sadiq obviously the better striker, but Don could stay aggressive enough with the calf kicks from the outside, which he's been doing in a lot of fights. And that should be able to fill the holes long enough that he can eventually get the takedown when he needs to. You know, Sadiq has shown some solid uh, takedown defense and good get-ups in past fights. But I think that Don could make this a closer fight than minus 625 indicates, right? Like, I'm giving Sadiq Yusuf a 75% chance of winning this fight. 75% indicates, I believe, minus 300. He is at a 90% implied rate right now at minus 900 to win this fight. I think that's crazy. I think that's crazy. Like, yes, he is the better fighter here, but the, his lack of wanting to throw at times allows fights to just pass him by. The Arnold Allen fight, Allen was able to land a, a knockdown in that matchup, not to mention get some good control with some takedowns as well. The Andre Feely fight, another very close fight. Feely unanimously won that third round on all judges' scorecards, and a lot of that had to do with the grappling that slowed down Sadiq Yusuf. I'm expecting some grappling here against Don Shanus. I'm expecting Don to try to make Sadiq work here. And Don, he may have the better cardio. Not 100% saying that he does, but he could. So, like, the pick and prediction is Sadiq Yusuf by knockout. Because I think he's just that much better in the striking realm here. But if he lets this fight pass him by, Don Shanus will make this a very close, or a closer fight than the odds actually indicate. I'm close to pulling the trigger on at least a half unit on Shanus at plus 625. Just taking a Hail Mary shot because I think that you know, he has shown good enough skills on the regional scene, but this is a massive step up in competition, right? This is why I'm not predicting Shanus to win. I'm just saying that at the line that he's at, he has a little bit of value for the type of style that he normally brings to the cage. And he apparently has a full training camp for this matchup. He's training with my guy, James Krause. And we know Trey Ogden just pulled off a great uh, upset victory in the last UFC event uh, against Daniel Zellhuber. It's not out of the realm of possibility that a perfect enough game plan can give Shanus a, a winning chance to win this fight.
So, or a fighting chance to win this fight, I should say. So pick is going to be Sadiq Yusuf by knockout, but I am not touching this fight uh, from the Yusuf side. Way too much chalk on that side. Uh, at most, maybe his KO line, which is minus 150, still not too hot on that. Don Shane is, could be live here. Him by decision is plus 1,200 as well. Over one and a half, minus 165, I don't think is a bad line liner either if you're looking for another angle here. So best bet would probably be over one and a half, but flyer of the night probably got to be excuse me, uh, Don Shanus, money line. But prediction again, Sadiq Yusuf, knockout. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We're talking about Hauni Barcelos finally making his way back to the cage. Going up against Trevin Jones, minus 230 on Hauni Barcelos, plus 195 on Trevin Jones. Now, both guys are likely on the chopping block here. And I not I never thought I'd say that for a guy like Hauni Barcelos, but he's coming off of two losses. One to Timur Valiev, where he seemed a little bit too gun shy in uh, one of the rounds where he ended up losing because Valiev was just the one that was a little bit more active. And then the uh, Victor Henry fight, where everybody and myself included overlooked Victor Henry, but Henry is a very solid veteran who has competed pretty much in all corners of the world, uh, accumulated more than enough in experience and talent to come into the UFC and pull off the big upset like he did against Hani uh, Barcelos last time around. Uh, but I think that this version of Barcelos, knowing what he has to go up against, knowing that he, uh, you know, will likely get cut from the UFC, loses here. I think we'll see like that vintage version of Hauni that we saw against guys like Khalid Taha and Saeed Nurmagomedov. Great combinations, blistering Muay Thai, great leg kicks, maybe even some wrestling if he needs it. Because Trevin Jones, I think he's going to be outmatched pretty much in every other aspect of this fight. Trevin Jones is best chance that there's only wins in the UFC have come by comeback knockout, right? Come back and, and knock out Mario Bautista, come back and knock out Timur Valiev. But outside of that, he's pretty much getting touched up and worked in all of his other fights. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have too much to say about this because I feel pretty strongly about Hani here. Uh, the only way I really see Trevin winning this fight is if he lands a Hail Mary knockout. But from all accounts, Pony Barcelos, solid durability. And he's the better fighter here. Better striker as well. Even if Jones wants to try to get his jiu-jitsu going, which is another strong aspect of his game, I think he's going to struggle in doing that as well. So I really like Hani Barcelos here to control the majority of this fight. I think he could potentially finish Trevin Jones, but I'm ultimately going to say that he wins by decision. But uh, his line at minus 230... I don't mind it at all. Like I, that is a spot that I'm willing to eat the chalk on because I think he's just that much better than his opponent Trevin Jones in this spot. So let's go, Honey Barcelos, Honey Barcelos, uh, minus two thirty, possibly even a lock of the night play. Who said that? Just saying. All right, co-main event. Let's get to the damn thing here. We got Randy Rude Boy Brown coming in at minus 320, going up against Francisco Oldro, Old Boy Trinaldo, plus 265. Very easy fight to break down here. Trinaldo still doing the damn thing at his ripe age of, I want to say 44. Is he 44 now? Yeah, 44 years old. Uh, he just turned 44 back in August. Um, but right now, he's in the midst of a 5 and 1 run in his last six fights. He beat Bobby Green in November 2019. He beat John McDessie in March of 2020. He beat Jai Herbert in July of 2020. He lost to Muslim Salikov in June of 2021. Uh, beat Dwight Grant by split decision in October 2021. And then just most recently defeated Danny Roberts by decision back in May. Um, 
44 is still doing the damn thing right big power in his hands that's usually how he gets the respect of his opponents always moves forward always throws big shots and you know landing knockdowns and hurting his opponents but i think he's going to be completely outmatched here in a guy like randy brown who you know very solid striking uses his range very well uses his kicks up the middle quite well too but i think that the speed and the length here of randy brown is just going to be too much for trinaldo to deal with you know I, i'm thinking maybe randy brown by decision but i'm also thinking him inside the distance because i think that there's a, a big enough gap here that brown can just touch him up from the outside but we saw brown have a somewhat close fight against chaos williams in his last fight and i think a lot of that we saw him uh you know be a little bit tentative in terms of the power that was coming back his way you know i think that we saw uh, a very disciplined version of randy brown because he knew that any small slip up could be at the end of the night for him and that's what he might bring into this fight against Ronaldo. Ronaldo was live to land a knockdown at any moment of a fight because of how much power and aggressiveness that he throws with. So if Randy Brown minds his P's and Q's and just plays a tight, clean uh, Muay Thai game from the outside, he can just sell Poi Francisco Ronaldo en route to a decision win. And that's the way I think he wins this fight. I don't think that we'll see him get overzealous. I don't think we'll see him, you know, be too crazy to go out there and try to get the knockout. Just touch up this old veteran from the outside, win this fight nice and clean, and continue to move yourselves up the rank and add a big name like Francisco Trinaldo to your record. You know, he's fought big punchers in his last couple of fights, and he's come out relatively unscathed. Jared Gooden, Chaos Williams. These guys are big, powerful strikers. <clears throat> And we saw a very disciplined version of Randy Brown in all those matchups. He can do the same thing here against Ronaldo. I'm just hoping that the durability of Ronaldo holds up enough that Randy Brown can just touch him up over 15 minutes and win that way. Because I think like you can parlay Randy Brown. I'm, I'd be completely okay with that. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of just getting like a single bet down on this fight, I'd probably say Randy Brown by decision. So pick here, Randy Brown, decision. Should be an easy matchup for him. I hope so. I wish MMA was always this easy, but hey, you might fumble the bag here as well. All right, next up, main event. Another great opportunity for me to remind you guys, hit that like, hit that subscribe, drop a comment below as well. Appreciate all the love, appreciate all the support, and I'm hoping you guys are enjoying the pre-edited version like I used to do. I'm always trying to do it because I know there's a large majority of guys that love when I do it this way as well. <clears throat> All right, main event time, women's strawweight bout, classic striker versus grappler matchup here. We got number four ranked Mackenzie Dern going up against number seven ranked Yan Xiaonan, minus 230 for the grappler Mackenzie Dern, plus 195 the return on the striker Yan Xiaonan. Now, let's start off on the Mackenzie Dern side of things, who came out victorious in her last fight against Tisha Torres. Uh, it seemed like a fight where Tisha Torres was a little bit too scared to engage with Mackenzie because anytime she did, she thought Mackenzie was going to be able to grab onto her and pull her into some sort of jujitsu realm, right? Close fight. You know, I thought Tisha won myself, but it was a very close fight. Mackenzie has an abysmal 6 or 7% takedown accuracy rate as she very much struggles to get, get fights to the ground, but she always finagles her way of somehow trying to get the jujitsu going whether it's jumping on the back of her opponents, whether it's pulling guard, whether it's using the Kimura to try to drag her opponents to the ground. She does a very good job in doing so. But, you know, when she can't, she gets butchered on the feet like she did against Marina Rodriguez. And I'm thinking that we're going to get a similar outcome here against Yan Zhaonan. Now, everybody gives Yan Zhaonan shit because, you know, her loss or her most 
her second last loss was to Carlos Esparza, not just the loss to Carlos Esparza, but by finish. But what people fail to realize is that Carlos Esparza is one of the best wrestlers in this division. So it's going to be hard to get up from under Carlos Esparza, let alone stop takedowns from Carlos Esparza. And then when Carlo once got that uh, crucifix position, <clears throat> she was able to just batter Yan Zhanan from on top. I think Mackenzie will struggle more to get this fight to the ground. But I understand why she's the favorite. I just don't understand why she's this big of a favorite. Because yes, as the grappler, she should be maybe a minus 120, minus 130 favorite. Because once she gets to this, this to the ground, like it could be the end of the night for Yan Zhanan. But if she doesn't, she's going to get absolutely butchered on the feet. Like, Yan Zhaonan's advantage on the feet is more than enough reason as to why she should not be a plus 190 dog in this spot. I think she touches up Mackenzie on the feet. I think she butches her. And I think she eventually finds a finish later in this fight. I think plus 190 is a gift on her in this spot. You know, Mackenzie, her striking is slowly coming along. You know, we saw her show a little bit more confidence in the Tisha Torres fight where she just kind of bit down on her mouthpiece and would throw big shots to just throw something out there. I think she learned a lot from the Marina Rodriguez fight, knowing that like if I'm not able to get fights to the ground, I'm just letting fights pass me by by allowing my opponent to just beat me up on the feet. But she can do that against Tisha Torres. She's not going to be able to do that against Yan Zhanan, who's going to be hitting her with counters over and over again as this fight starts to wear on. And I think eventually one of those is going to eventually break Mackenzie Dern. So line is way too wide here. I like... The work that Yan Zhanan's been doing over there at Team Alpha Male as well. I'm hoping they're getting her ready to go with takedown defense and and even some jujitsu defense, getting stalling and getting out of bad positions. But I'd be surprised if we get into those bad positions enough that will not allow Yan Zhanan to win this fight. So I'm gonna go uh, Yan Zhanan. I'm gonna go Yan Zhanan via TKO uh, later in this fight. Let me just pull up here. Uh, One second. I had the uh, best bets and props article. I'm trying to recall whether I put decision or KO. Because I feel I feel good about both. I put Yan by KO plus 700. Not a bad stab. Also, fight doesn't go to decision. Uh, last time I checked, it was minus 200. Let's see what they're holding that number at now. Uh, they don't have it up. That's just great. Let me just quickly, uh, let me just check out DraftKings real quick and see what line they're holding for that. Because if it's better than minus 250, I think it would have some legs in terms of being a live prop for this fight. Um, under two and a half is plus 105. Fight goes to decision is minus fight doesn't go to decision is minus 190. I love that. I might even end up taking a shot on that myself. But I think one of these women is gonna get the finish, whether it's Dern by um by submission or Yan Jianan just slowly breaks you down and eventually knocks her out. But the pick is gonna be Yan Jianan for me, taking her by knockout plus seven hundred. Take a little bit of a sprinkle on that, if you will. All right. That is a wrap on the breakdowns. Appreciate everybody that's checked out the show. I'm dropping this on a went, excuse me, Wednesday night, so I appreciate everybody being patient with it. I'll also be jumping on another podcast. Excuse me, getting the hiccups right at the end of the show here. Perfect way to end it. I'll be hopping on another friend show, the Couch Warrior Podcast. Make sure you guys go check that out. Uh, I'll be doing that tonight, tomorrow, Thursday 
propping you up with Cody 5 p.m. Eastern as always. Friday, Ultimate Wayne Show. My guest actually just fell out, but I do have a replacement lined up that I just need to confirm. That should be going down 2 p.m., 3 p.m. on Friday. So make sure you guys tune in for that as well. And then obviously Fight Day Live Chat, 1 p.m. Eastern. You know what it is. All right, appreciate every single one of you guys. Hit that like and subscribe below. Hit the comment section below as well. Shit on me for saying Don Shaneus has a chance of winning this fight. Shit on me for anything else as well. You know I love you guys. It's all love at the end of the day. Good luck on your best this week. And I'll see you guys throughout the week. Peace.